0: You can open up your copy of the Bible to the book of Hebrews. That's the book of the Bible we've been going through as a church family. And we are up to chapter 6 this morning. We nudged into it last Sunday, the first three verses. So we're going to start at verse 4 here uh, shortly. And we'll go all the way down to verse 12. But uh, I wanted to say, as always, a special thank you to uh, all of you who are guests uh, with us. I, I appreciate John saying that. Welcome. I want to reiterate that to you. If you're new to our church, especially if you live here in town, uh, we'd love to get to know you better. Next Sunday night. Uh, We do this once a month. We're having a coffee with the pastors. Uh, We do that uh, at 6 o'clock next Sunday. It's a time we have desserts and coffee, but share a little bit about our church, get to know you a little bit, let you get to know us a little bit. So you don't need to sign up for that. You can just show up for it. Uh, But we'd love to have you come back next Sunday morning, but especially next Sunday night uh, so we can get to know you a a bit better. And I also want to say thank you as always to the collective church family that's already here for your generosity. Uh, Every week I'm reminded of how thankful I am uh, that you take from What the Lord has given to you, what He's entrusted to you as an individual or as a family, and that you give some of those funds to our common fund as a church to use to support our pastors, to fund our missionaries, to fund our ministries here as a church. And so I want to say a special thank you uh, to you as well. All right. Uh, So we come to this text today, and I I was thinking about this a lot this week, uh, obviously, but I, I was thinking about this in particular, and this may surprise some to hear, but Satan loves to preach. And Satan loves to preach to God's people. And even more than that, this may even be more surprising to hear. Satan loves to preach to God's people from God's word. He loves to do it. He's done it from the very beginning. From the first words that God spoke to human beings, Satan latched onto those things and would speak them back, and, but he would twist them. And it, it, he knows, Satan knows, our great enemy knows, if his tempting doesn't work, that his teaching might. That if, if he can And if he can teach us by using the very word of God to run counter to God's will, to disobey God, to defy God, he has pulled off the ultimate coup, right? He's, he's capitalizing on our trust in the word of God and our interest in it. And if he can speak to us through those words but misapply them or twist them, uh, then he has won in a sense. And so Satan loves to preach to us and he loves to preach to us even from this very passage that we're gonna step foot into this morning. There's a pastor uh, from the last century, which feels weird to say now, but we're 22 years into this one. So uh, he lived in the last century, preached in the last century over in Great Britain. His name was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And deep into his ministry, he said this, referencing at least part of the text we're gonna look at this morning. This is what he said as a, a pastor much more seasoned and influential than I, he said this. I can definitely say after some 35 years of pastoral experience that there are no passages in the whole of Scripture which have more frequently troubled people and caused them soul agony than the passage in Hebrews 6, 4 through 8 and the corresponding passage in Hebrews 10:26 through 29. Large numbers of Christians are held in bondage by Satan owing to a misunderstanding of these particular statements. I do not say that these are the two most difficult passages in the Bible. I do not regard them as such. But I do assert that they are passages that the devil seems to use most frequently in order to distress and to trouble God's people. That's the text we get to to come to this morning. Uh, but I I think he's right I've seen this even in my years as a pastor that this text and ones like it really can be used by Satan to preach to us when I was in seminary uh, we would go to chapel a few times a week and then I had a preaching class that would be after this one semester And sometimes we would talk about the sermon that was given at that chapel and uh, there was this one, I I don't even remember the message to be honest, but I remember all of us were very impressed by the preacher who had just preached and we were talking about it in class and our seminary professor said this, not that he was trying to throw cold water on it, but he said, oh, like that is brother so-and-so's sugar stick. And we said, "What does that mean?" Like, he's a very Southern guy. He's like, "Oh, that's his sugar stick." And he went on to explain what he meant by that was sometimes when brothers were given this opportunity to preach in this church and in this church and at this convention and in this town and in this town, they would develop this go-to sermon uh, where they would just preach it here, then preach it there, and they would refine it and get a little bit better, and they preach it the next time, and eventually you get a very polished, nice sermon, and that they would call that their sugar stick uh, as a sermon. Sermon, And I would suggest to you that Satan has developed a sugar stick of a sermon from this passage. He has been preaching it for a few thousand years now, uh, countless more times than I have preached. He has refined it, he's developed the ability to preach it to us in ways that are very effective and misleading distracting, depressing, uh, he can twist it and does twist it. And so as we come to this text this morning, I want us to do it with sobriety, with attentiveness, to know even as I seek to preach it to you that Satan's going to be trying to preach a rival sermon simultaneously. And later today, he's going to try to preach a different sermon to you about this text. He's going to seek to twist it. And so I'm going to read this passage here in just a moment, but if you haven't been with us, I want to give some quick notes of kind of where we are in the Bible and as we launch into this text today. But this was a letter, uh, it's kind of like a written sermon, but it was a letter written to a group of early Christians who by all accounts seemed to have a Jewish heritage. That's why it's called Hebrews. And what the author addresses again and again, he's going to do it in today's text, is he's addressing the temptation that they were experiencing as early Jewish Christians, uh, that's their temptations to what would be called apostasy to apostatize. That just means that they were being tempted to not just, is a significant thing, but to walk away from Christ, to denounce him, to reject him ultimately. And finally, their temptation they were facing wasn't maybe what ours most commonly are. Things like greed, lust, uh, fame, promiscuity, those sorts of things. Their temptation that they were facing was apostasy. And he's given them a couple warnings in this letter already, and he's going to ratchet it up in this text today he's going to do it more in the letter that follows but this text he's given a few warnings but now he's going to ratchet up the intensity of what he says and how he says it and this text you're going to hear in a moment especially the first half of it it is a staggering text like if you haven't prepped yourself in reading it it is a weighty staggering text I think it was meant to make us sit up It was meant to perk up the ears of people maybe who had fallen asleep when they were reading this at church. Like It was something to grab our attention on purpose. There's powerful, significant language, and it calls for us to have the utmost seriousness and sincerity as we approach it today. And so I'm going to read this to us of Hebrews 6. I'm going to start at verse 4, and we're going to go down to verse 12. And uh, even as Satan might seek to preach a different sermon to you, I want us to be sensitive to the Spirit's sermon from this text. He's the one that inspired it. He's the one that will help us understand it and apply it. And so I'm going to read this for us. Uh, it has Satan's sugar stick text and then some glorious promises of comfort at the end of it. But starting in Hebrews 6:4, the author wrote this, for it is impossible For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case that belong to salvation, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love... And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is the word of God. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. I would note as we enter into this text, just real briefly, it has three sections to it. It has a warning, the first verses 4 through 6. It has an illustration in the middle of it, verses 7 through 8, that unfortunately we're not going to get to spend much time in. Uh, But then it has at the end of it, verses 9 through 12, it has words of comfort. So there's warning, illustration, and comfort. And so I want to start by suggesting to you how I think the enemy preaches his sugar stick especially from these first few verses the things that he would point you to the things he ways he would try to use these first few verses how does he try to preach it to us and we'll spend much more time on what does it actually mean what how would the spirit preach it to us but i want you to be alert to how the enemy could preach this text to you maybe how he has already in the past maybe how he is even in the privacy of your mind right now, I want you to be aware of how he seeks to preach this passage. The first strategy I think that he has, maybe a first point of his sermon, would have something to do with him misinforming us about salvation. Uh, He tries to misinform us. Satan loves to use this text, especially the first few verses, to try to persuade us of something that is false, and that is this, that Christians can lose their salvation. Satan will try to, he will tempt us to believe that. And he will point to the very word of God here to try to say, your salvation, Christian, can be lost. Like you who are saved, you who are forgiven, that can be lost. That's what he tries to say to us through this text. But I would suggest to you to read this text carefully. And if you do, you will see no such thing, right? That that may be inferred from this passage, It might be an assumption that people make because he's describing people who are in a a certain state and then fall away. We could infer or assume, oh, that's talking about real Christians who really lose their salvation, but it does not say that, right? It it doesn't teach that. In fact, there are countless other texts, uh, several that are very clear, that teach the exact opposite of that, that teach that those whom God has saved will stay saved those who God has elected, those who he elects, he calls, and then he justifies, and he glorifies. It's this unbroken chain that always ends in salvation. It's not that salvation is given and then revoked. That does not happen. And the scriptures are clear about this. Jesus said that no one can snatch people out of the Father's hand, right? So Satan would try to start by misinforming us with this idea that we could lose our salvation, but if you've ever gone down that road of thought, you know that doesn't just stay an abstract idea out there, right? If you believe that salvation can be lost, it, is not, it does not take long for you to start, if you have a sensitive heart, to start to think, could that happen to me? like has that happened to me will that happen to me in the future and this is where satan turns a few more screw turns the screwdriver a bit more turns the drill up a bit more if he can get us to believe the idea that salvation can be lost it's not just that he wants us to misunderstand something satan wants to terrify us he wants us to live with dread, with fear, with terror before God rather than joy. And if Satan was preaching this text or when Satan preaches this text, he doesn't just want it to lay, stay as an abstract idea. He wants you to start to feel like this could be me, like this could happen to me. And he, if Satan was preaching this sermon, I think he would latch on very significantly to verse four and one word in particular, the word impossible. Right? He would say that word again, and again, if you did a word count of his sermon that he preaches on this, that word would be the most frequent one, that it is impossible, he would say, you who've lost your salvation, that's what he would say, it was impossible for you to be restored to salvation, you can't come back, you have left and the doors have been locked, there is no return for you, that is what Satan would love to do, and some of you I think have probably lived with this dread in your soul, maybe you even are right now, You come to texts like this or similar ones in the Bible and you think, this has happened to me. Like, I am damned forever. Like, I have been rejected by God. I've committed the sin that cannot be forgiven. And Satan delights to keep turning the screws in with you on that. Keep pointing you back to the word impossible. Impossible. It is impossible for you to regain the salvation that you have lost. That is what Satan would say to you. That is what Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think, was speaking about when he talked about the soul agony that people can feel from this text, or ones like it. The, the bondage that they feel, the distress, the trouble that they feel from this passage. But there's another angle that Satan takes with this text that he may try to use with some of us that we may be less perceptive of. I would say some of us, when we read this, we in our theological, uh, like, uh, suaveness and depth, we, we think, oh, Satan, like, I know what you're trying to do. I know salvation cannot be lost. Like, I know I'm saved. I know I am born again. And we can then say to ourselves, this text is not for me. Like this text is for other people. This is like for quasi-Christians or like people who just think they're believers. That's who this text is for. It's not really even for me. I can just turn the page and move on to verse 13 and following. And so we can think in our, our theological pride, I would say, Satan, I know your strategy, but this text really isn't for me. It is for others. But Satan would love us to think that. Now he would love for us to to just turn the page from this text, kind of skip over it as actual Christians, and move on to the next one. And in doing that, if he can convince you to do that and just go to your theological categories, what he's doing is he is effectively blunting the edge of this sword. Like he, he is getting you to turn deaf ears to a text that God wants even you to hear. God wants even me to hear. There's no text of scripture that is just for a certain category of people. It is for all of us, including these verses. So we need to be aware of how Satan would try to misinform us, to terrify us, or even to distract us or, or make us overlook this text of Scripture. We need to actually come to it and try to hear what the Spirit of God says through this passage. And so that's what I, what I want to do with the rest of our time. Is try to say, what was the author actually saying? What is the Spirit of God, the author behind the author, what is he actually saying to us? And I, I think he would want us to see two things. The first one that we'll spend the most time on is that these warnings, this warning is real. This is not just something, let's just, like, abstract. It's not just something for us to look past. These warnings are real. And so I want to dive into this text as we start in verse 4. A question that's important for us to think about in verses 4 to 6, this warning, is who is he talking about? Like, who's he describing here in verses four through six? There's a lot that hinges on that, of who you think he's talking about. Uh, So what does he say about them? He's, He's clearly imagining a group that has fallen away, right? That's what he says in verse 6. He says that this group of people have fallen away. That's not like a temporary, like, oh, we kind of wandered into a little bit of disobedience. Uh, Falling away is what I was talking about before. It's apostasy. It's a rejecting of Jesus, an outright denial of him, saying, I no longer rest my soul in him. I won't be following him. I won't be trusting him. That's what he's imagining has happened to this group. But there's many other things he says leading up to that that are statements about them to clarify who they are, right? Who are these people he's imagining have fallen away? And the question is, and we'll look at the things he says, is are the descriptors in verses 4 and 5, are those talking about what one commentator would call almost Christians or are they talking about actual Christians? Like, are they describing people who've kind of just been around Jesus and have heard the good news? Or are they talk, is he imagining a group of people who, no, they've actually been born again. They've actually believed. They've actually turned in faith to Jesus. Uh, most people, many people, I would say, as you read it, think that he's talking about almost Christians. Like people who maybe profess faith but who really don't have faith, they don't possess faith. That's how, how many people think. But I would suggest to you, I think he is actually talking about actual Christians. Like that is who he is describing. Look at the phrases he uses, right? In verse four, he says that they have been enlightened, right? That's like the, the Spirit has turned the lights on in their heart. Like he, he has shown them things. He has shown them the truth about God and about Christ. He says uh, that they have tasted three different things, right? He says that they have tasted the heavenly gift. He says that they have tasted the goodness of the word of God. He says that they have tasted of the powers of the age to come. So they've tasted these three things. They, they've taken them into themselves. And if we're tempted to think, well, that just means they kind of like sampled it. They just kind of like took a little bite and maybe they spit out. Remember he said earlier in this book, Jesus tasted death on our behalf. Right? That same word. Like Jesus didn't just kind of like taste death and spit it out. He swallowed it down. Right? That is what tasting means in this author's mind, that it gets fully into them. So they tasted the heavenly gift. They tasted the goodness of the word of God. They tasted the powers of the age to come. He even says that they shared in the Holy Spirit. Right, The end of verse 4, they shared in the Holy Spirit. Some may try to say like, that this is almost Christians. These are professing Christians but not real Christians that he's talking about. And they would base that on saying that, you know, none of those things are 100% guarantees, like certainties. That is an unquestionable trait of a person of God. But he is stacking up a bunch of traits that sound very much like Christians, right? And I think sometimes we read texts like this. Some of us may be more guilty of this than others. We read texts like this sometimes sometimes coming from our systematic theology lens, like, oh, I know all these other things from the Bible, and so I'm going to read this in light of those. I know that all the elect will ultimately be saved. So I know he couldn't actually mean these are Christians. That there's no way that could be. And we come with our systematic theology glasses on, instead of just reading the passage in its immediate context, these, these things are clear descriptions of actual Christians. I think if you gave a child this and said, read this, who is this talking about? They would say, it's talking about Christians. Like it's talking about people who have been enlightened, who've learned who Jesus is, who've tasted down the word of God, who've shared in the Holy Spirit. I think he is talking about actual Christians here. That doesn't mean there aren't professing Christians who aren't actual. There are. There are people who profess Christ that don't possess Christ. But I don't think that's who he's talking about here. I think he is talking about actual born again Christians. Even in verse uh, 6, he talks about these people who've fallen away. And what does he say is impossible? He says to restore them again to what? To repentance. Like, so this group has been repentant. Like, it's not just they've kind of been around. It's that they actually were repentant. They they had turned in confession and faith towards Christ. And a, a convincing point to me that I think he's actually talking about actual Christians is he's writing this to people he thinks are actual Christians right? Verse 9 and 10, he's going to affirm to them, essentially, like, I think you all are born again. Like, I think you really do know the Lord. Like, and so uh, he's describing a group of actual Christians to a group of actual Christians, right? That, but he's imagining something happening to them of this true group of real Christians falling Away, apostatizing, walking away from Christ. So the question would be, why? Like, what's the intended effect of that? If he's talking about a group of real Christians who fall away and cannot be restored to repentance, what is the point of that? What is he trying to affect? I would suggest to you very simply that what he is trying to accomplish and what the Spirit of God is trying to accomplish with this warning is he's trying to fuel their perseverance in the faith. Very simply, straightforward reading of this text, he's trying to get them to persevere in the faith, to not fall away. That's what he's trying to do, is saying, you must press on in faith. Like, you must complete the race in faith. You must persevere. And he wants them to know, if you abandon Christ, you will be damned. Like, if you walk away from him, you reject him, you turn away from him, you will be cursed. Like you will receive eternal judgment. He is saying that very clearly. That if people fall away from Christ, they will be cursed. They will be condemned by God. Using that illustration language of the the land and the, the fruit and the thorns and thistles, he's saying if you walk away from Christ, you like that ground that is cursed will be burned. Like he's wanting them to see that stakes are high. Like you must not fall away from Jesus. No matter what is tempting you to do it, you must not fall away from him. But I think what we do sometimes with this text or similar ones to it, where it talks about judgment that ultimately comes upon people. As we turn texts like this into a test of the genuineness of our faith, that's how we use a text like this, rather than a prod to get us to persevere. And what I mean by that is this. We, when we come to a text like this, we kind of step back and we think, okay, I know the Bible says that all Christians will persevere. Like, I know that it says that. I know that it teaches that. And it does. Like, and so we, we start with that and we say, so if, if a person falls away... If they, they reject Christ, it means they never really possessed him in the first place. It means they never really, uh, that they never really followed him truly in the first place. That's what we think next. And there are texts that teach that. Read First John. But that, it, this text are, is not those texts. Like this text is not trying to get us to then take the next step we do and think, well let me do some evaluation of myself. Let me do some inventory of my heart and see, am I a professing Christian or am I one of these phony Christians? Am I someone who really does love the Lord and follow him or am I a fake Christian? I don't think that is what this text is trying to do. It's not trying to turn us inward on ourselves in introspection and just scrutinize and evaluate. Very matter of factly, it's calling us to persevere in the faith. Uh, There's a commentator, one of the professors from my seminary, who's written about this text who has said some very, very helpful things about this passage, I wanted to share one quote that he said about this very thing and how we sometimes misuse a warning passage like this. Tom Schreiner said this, he said, the threats in Hebrews are not designed to force us to consider whether our conversion experience was real, nor are they designed as retrospective, like looking backward, tests of our salvation. The warnings are prospective. It's like looking forward there to, to help us look forward. Hebrews warns believers that if they apostatize, then they will be damned. Like, these texts are not intended to just help us at the end of our life or at some midpoint of our life to look back on my previous life and think, am I really legit? Like, have I really been born again? That's not what this text is to do. This text and ones like it is to, in the present and looking forward, to motivate us to keep believing. Like To motivate us to keep holding on to Christ, to keep trusting in Christ. That is what these texts are intended to do. But Satan would love, to, in his sugar stick of a sermon, to come to texts like this and get us to just turn inward and look backward and think, am I legitimately a Christian? I'm going to do some evaluating here of my present and my past. This text is not so much intended to make you evaluate the legitimacy of your conversion. It's to motivate you. It is to compel you to keep believing in Christ. That is what this text is intended to do. But some of you, if you're like me, uh, my mind, I get to think on these texts all week. Uh, I know you maybe spend an hour uh, thinking on them. My mind goes to all sorts of places. But some of your minds may go where mine did as I was studying this text to think, okay, if, if he's writing about actual Christians falling away, and saying that they would be damned. But at the same time, the Bible is very clear that no real believers will actually fall away. Why is he even writing this? Like, what, like, what is the point of this? this is this just some like hypothetical stuff about stuff that would never actually happen? Like if that's the case, why is he even including it? And I was thinking about that a lot. My first answer to that would be, we're not the Holy Spirit and we don't know always what he's trying to accomplish in his word. We're not the authors of the Bible, the Spirit is. Uh, But there was an illustration that that same professor used, Tom Schreiner, that he used that was very helpful to me to think about this question, I think maybe helpful for you. And he was—he actually used a story from the Bible itself, one you may not be super familiar with, uh, but it's from the Book of Acts in Acts chapter 27. And and there's a story that happens there that uh, I think has some helpful parallels that can can connect some dots for us. In Acts 27, you could read it sometime if you like. It's kind of a long account, um, but the Apostle Paul has been arrested and he's been put on trial, and he has made an appeal to be heard by Caesar. And it's been granted to him, and, but Caesar is in Rome and Paul is not. And so he is put on this ship under the guard of a centurion to be taken to Rome to make his appeal before Caesar. Uh, and I don't know a lot about boating and maritime sort of stuff, but the, the record records for us in Acts 27 that's getting late in the year Uh, that the weather's getting dicier, and so they're trying to push it. They're trying to get further and further along, get into safer harbors that are closer to Rome as the winter approaches. But they get into this place as they're trying to push it, where they're out at sea, and day by day, the storms are getting worse. And their their boat and their very lives are getting in more and more of a predicament, uh, more and more danger to where they're becoming increasingly sure we're going to die. Like, we are not going to actually make it to Rome. We're not even going to make it to our next stop. And what happens is this fascinating account that the Apostle Paul, one of those nights uh, that they're in the, the midst of this and feeling more and more dread, he has an angel visit him. And the angel says to him in verse 24, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And he says, and behold, God, he says, he adds this detail. He says, behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. And so what he's told Paul as a promise, as a guarantee is everybody on this boat is going to be okay. Like you actually are going to make it to Rome and everybody on this boat is going to live. Like uh, no matter what you all think, like they are going to live. They're going to be saved. And then, so Paul relays this this has a point, I promise. Paul relays this to the people on board as they're starting to get discouraged and fearful. And he says in verses 25 and 26, he says, "'Take heart, men, for I have faith in God "'that it will be exactly as I have been told.'" Then he adds this thing that the angel has told him. He says, "'But we must run aground on some island.'" So he knows they're gonna be saved, but he knows they're gonna crash, right? That's been told him by this angel, Uh, And, but what he apparently has also been told by this angel and it becomes clear with this story is that if they are going to be saved, they must stay on the boat. They're not allowed to get off of it, to to take their own escape paths. They have to actually stay on the boat. So he's been told two things. You're all going to make it. You're all going to be saved, but you got to stay on this boat. Like, you cannot get off of it. He's told both of those things. And so as they get close to land and they're starting to send out, however they do that, I don't even know how they tell how far down they are, uh, how deep the water is. They're getting closer and closer to shore. They know the crash is coming. Some of the guys on the ship, because they're not believers at all, they start to want to do anything and everything they can to escape, to just look out for number one. So they start to think about how they're going to use anchors and how they might use these smaller little boats to get off, things like that. And what Paul does, it's fascinating. Paul says them, says to them, he says, verse thirty one, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. He's he's telling them Guys, stay on the ship. Like, I was told we will all be saved, but we've got to stay on this thing. Like, you cannot get off of it. Like, we will be okay, but you must stay on the ship. And that is what happens. That's precisely what happens. They, they run aground, but verse 44 says, they were all brought safely to land. It happened just as the angel said, just as God had said, they all ultimately were saved. And Paul knew that would be the course from the beginning. But when, he, when he, knowing that they would all be saved... When they were tempted to to jump ship, Paul didn't just sit on his hand and be like, ooh, this will be fascinating to see, like how this plays out. I wonder how this is going to work. He warned them. Like he raised his voice and said, stay on the ship. Even though he knew they would all be saved, he knew they had to stay on the ship. And his warning to them was what made them stay on the ship right? His warning was what God used to make them stay on the ship and to fulfill his promise that they would all be saved. And so it was certain that they would be saved, but it was also necessary that they stay on the ship. And Paul warns them as much, right? And so the warning was the means by which God kept and saved his people, right? That we're going to be saved all along, but the warning was part of how he kept them. And the same is true for us with our salvation, Every person who is saved, every person who's been called by God and who's united with Christ will be saved in the end, right? We will all make it to shore of heaven, right? But we must stay on the ship, right? It's a certainty we'll make it, but we have to stay on the ship of Christ. Like we cannot go to our own little lifeboats or create our own mechanisms. If we do that, if we were to do that, we would not be saved, Right? We would be crucifying Christ again. We'd be rejecting him. We have to stay on the ship. And warnings like what we see in Hebrews 6 are part of what God uses to make us stay on the ship. To remind us, man, if I jump ship here, I am toast. If I reject Christ, I am damned. If I turn away from him, I am cursed. And these warnings remind us, stay on the ship of Christ. Like your salvation is guaranteed. You have to stay on the ship. So that's what these warnings do and they call us to persevere that's the main point i would i would give you from that part of the text that that these warnings are real they're real warnings to real christians and what we're supposed to do in light of that is persevere we're to persevere in the faith press on in the faith these brothers and sisters they were suffering these hebrew believers or they were suffering they were probably tempted to think man God is against us. Like why are we following him? Why are we following this Messiah? God must be against us because of all this difficulty that's coming into our life. And they were tempted to walk away from Christ. And if that's you, if you're ever tempted presently in the future to think the sufferings and ailments of your life are some sort of sign that God is cursing you, that he's condemning you, do not believe that lie of Satan. Keep trusting. Stay on the boat of Christ. That is the one that will bring you safely to the shore of heaven. These Christians, their, their faith was out of fashion with society, right? And as they received mistreatment or, or arrest, things like that from the society around them, they were probably tempted to think, this isn't worth this. Like this heavenly war, reward we think may be out there is not worth the earthly cost of being out of fashion and being mistreated. And this author is telling them, brothers and sisters, stay on the boat. Like You don't want to get off into these side life rafts. You don't want to try to find salvation in any other. And when I would say to us, as Christianity maybe continues to fall out of fashion in our society and we're mistreated or we're mocked or we're, we're outcast, the temptation for us is going to be to jump ship. But we must stay on the boat of Christ. There is no salvation in any other person in any other name. There were many people who left Jesus when he was doing his earthly ministry in John 6 as many of them are leaving Jesus said to his disciples do you want to go away as well like do you want to leave me and i so appreciate peter's answer in John 6:68 6, he said where else can we go lord and that would be the question i would ask you where else can you go There is no salvation on any other ship other than the person and the work of Christ. If you are on that boat, stay on that boat. Through suffering, through trial, through mistreatment, through confusion, through pain, stay on the boat of Christ. And if you do not, there is no hope for you. Stay on the boat of Christ. Persevere in your faith to the end. Satan would typically end his sugar stick of a sermon at the end of verse 8. He typically, if it was up to him, would not preach verses 9 through 12 uh, because there's actually some notes of hope. There's some notes of comfort. and I want to spend at least a a small bit of time preaching from those uh, because the Spirit, uh, the second thing that he would want us to see from this text, and I think that he's saying in this text, is not just that the warnings are real, but that the comforts of this text are real as well. That the assurances, the, the, the promises of this text are real as well. The comforts are real. And so the author turns from this very like, sobering, weighty, uh, confronting type of text in verses 4 through 8. And in verse 9 it almost sounds like a different person talking. Like there's this different tone that he strikes and how he talks. He starts speaking words of comfort to these early Christians. He calls them, in verse nine, he calls them beloved, for example. like he, He's wanting to remind them, I'm not against you, Like I, I'm for you, I, I love you all. He, he calls them beloved and he shares with them in verses nine and 10, he shares with them his confidence from where he sits. He shares with them his confidence or he says we, I don't know who the we would include. But he says, we speak in this way in your case, beloved. And then he says, we feel sure of better things, of things belong, that belong to salvation. He, he doesn't believe that they are cursed people. He doesn't believe that they are people who have already fallen away, and he doesn't believe that they are people who ultimately will fall away. He thinks they are actually born again, brothers and sisters in Christ. And he points to them, he wants them to know why he feels sure of their salvation, Right? He, he, and that's what he says in verse 10. He says, part of why, brothers and sisters, I'm assured, I'm confident that you will persevere in the faith, is he says, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. So he, he points them to their life presently and historically. And he's going to do this again later in the letter. And he wants them to say, I have seen the way you all live Like I have seen you press on through trial. I have seen you resist temptation. I have seen you be faithful to each other and to Christ thus far. And I am confident. He he appeals then to God's justice and says God will not overlook that. Like God sees that. God knows that. God knows that you are his people, that He he's united with Jesus, that he started to change and transform you. God has seen that, and God in his justice is committed to seeing it through, to, to carrying you on to the end. God is just. He will not overlook your faith. He will not overlook your love. He will not overlook the care that you have given to one another. He's saying, I've seen your life. That's part of why I believe you're part of the church that's why I believe that you there are better things in store for you things that belong to salvation and what we what we can note in that is that our obedience our our faithfulness to God in real life can serve as confirmation of our assurance right he's assured that they are born again he wants them to grow in their assurance he wants them to grow in their confidence we really are united with christ like he really is present among us by his spirit he wants them to grow in that and the way that they can grow in that is by having this zeal for godliness this zeal this he calls it an earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end That He wants them to have assurance. He doesn't want them to live in just dread and angst and fear and terror. He wants them to have confidence. He wants them to have assurance. And he says the path to that is not through sluggishness and disobedience and laziness. The way to grow in your assurance is actually to lean in and live for Christ actively, to engage Christ, to engage his people, to, to sacrifice for him. And as you do those things, your assurance can grow. I want to say as an aside, just because I think this could be an encouragement, a word of application from verse 10 that I meant to say a few moments ago. When he says that God's not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name and serving the saints, I want you to sit on that and think on that a little bit, each and every one of you who's a follower of Jesus and to know that In this world that currently is always clamoring to give you a platform or think you need to be seen by everybody and be out in the public eye or your godliness means nothing, your efforts mean nothing to know, in the privacy of your home, God sees you. In the privacy of your mind, God sees you. In your conversations one-on-one with people where you're appealing to them on behalf of Christ, God sees you. You don't have to be seen by the world and celebrated by the world to know that you're bearing fruit and that God is pleased with you. He is pleased in the privacy of things that you do. In the privacy of your mind, in the privacy of your home, your your life, in the privacy of of these classrooms or the, the life groups that you're part of, God sees. He knows what you are doing. You do not need a platform to project your good work out to the world. God sees you. He is pleased with how you are living your life if you are falling after his son. But he wants them to grow in assurance. He want, And he knows that the, the path to grow in assurance is obedience. The more we live obediently to Christ, the more faithfully we live to him, the more we grow in our assurance. And it, it Good works that we do, are, they're conformational, aren't are—they're confirmational, aren't they? They're, they're confirming things. They're things that help us see there's legitimacy to this. The Spirit of God really is at work. But if if Satan was tasked with preaching my whole text today, if he had to preach verses 9 through 12 as well, I think what Satan would try to do in our minds and hearts is he would take these categories and these real ideas that obedience can increase assurance, and what he would try to do is he would try to confuse in our minds and hearts the categories of God's acceptance of us and our assurance he, and this is what I mean when I say that he would try to confuse these things. Those are different things. God's acceptance of us, God's approval of us is objective and true and permanent, right? Our assurance is not. It will, it will ebb and flow. It will rise and fall with life at times. There, there's a, a subjectivity to it. And what he would love to have happen in our lives is for us in our desire to grow in assurance and say, hey, I want to grow in godliness so I have an increased assurance of God's favor. So I have an increased assurance of God's delight, his His presence in my life. He would love to take that pursuit of a growth and assurance and subtly, slowly twist it into a pursuit of God's approval. That that we start to believe, man, by me doing more, by me being more obedient, more selfless, more loving, more kind, more patient, not only am I trying to grow in my assurance, but I'm actually trying to grow in God's approval of me. And that is a rat race you do not want to run. Like where you are trying to, to gain the approval of God, not just trying to grow in your assurance of God's approval. But Satan would love for us to go down that road he would love for us to, in our pursuit of assurance, to begin to slowly pursue the approval and the acceptance of God, something we can never accomplish. But he would love to make us try. But, and I think Satan, if he was to preach this text, he would end partway through verse 12. I don't think he would even include the last glorious phrases of this text. I think he would love to to teach us, you know, you need to be zealous to grow in assurance. Like, you need to be growing in assurance. So do good works. Live well for Christ. You'll grow in assurance. He would love for us to, to try to do that and twist that towards a pursuit of acceptance. But the end of verse 12 helps us see that that idea that we could ever actually pursue and grow God's approval of us, it doesn't work. <laughs> that, that that could never actually happen. That's something, it's a fool's errand we can never do. Look, look at how this text ends. The Spirit of God would preach this text right up to the very end of it. He tells them in their zeal to grow in assurance, that in their increase of faithfulness, in their pursuit of the assurance of hope. He says, verse 12, that they should not be sluggish, that they won't be sluggish if they're pursuing that assurance. But then he says what they should be. He says they should be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That is an awesome (laughs) and glorious phrase, that they should be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises of God. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that if you are going to receive the promises of God, the promises of forgiveness, the promises of fellowship with the Holy Spirit, the promise of resurrection, the promise of glory, the promise of, of, of someday living amongst God's people for all time in God's presence, if you want to be a recipient of those promises, you do not gain it by works. You do not gain it by doing things for God. Or by stopping doing things for God's sake. That is not how we inherit the promises. We inherit the promises of God. He's going to say this again and again and again in this book. We inherit them by faith. Like, Christ has gained us those promises. Like, Christ is the one who has actually lived a righteous life. And Christ is the one who actually suffered on our behalf for our sins, taking our sins upon himself. Christ has lived. He has died. He has gained the Father's approval for us. And if we're going to receive that affirmation, that acceptance, that approval of God, it will come by our faith in his Son, not by our obedience toward his Son. Right? It is by being united with him in faith, and we must never get that wrong. In our quest to grow in assurance and to live a more godly life, so I have an increased confidence of God's work in my life, we must never confuse this and start to think by me becoming more obedient, I'm securing more and more of God's favor. That is a lie from Satan. Like you inherit the promises of God by faith in his son, but it is a patient faith. Right, We inherit it by faith and patience. Like it's not just that we have a flash-in-the-pan moment of repentance and faith at some point when I'm a kid or a teenager or today. When we have faith in Christ, it's a, a faith that has patience to it, a, a faith that endures, a, a faith that when I come up to the rocks of life and I come up to the rocks of death, like I still persevere in faith, always to the very end. That is the type of faith that we are to have, is a persistent, patient faith that will believe to the end. And note he says that we inherit the promises of God. Right? We, you don't earn inheritances. Right? You just give them. Uh, we inherit the promises of God. We're granted them by our heavenly father. Not because of anything we've done to impress him. But because of what Christ has done for us. And so may we never let Satan twist a text like this. This pursuit of assurance. And let him turn it into a pursuit of Approval. That, that cannot happen, that must not be pursued by us. So if these comforts are real of this text, the, the application of it would just be, if the first point was to persevere, the application of this would be to rest. Like this this text can induce such fear and terror and anxiety in people. It has done it in my life when I was younger. This text and others have induced fear, panic, dread, this existential angst in me. But this bottom half of this text is intended to call us to rest in what Christ has done for us. Even as we seek to persevere in faith, may we never get into this rat race of trying to gain God's approval, but rest in the approval that Christ has already gained. That is what the Christian life is about, a a faith and a patience that will lead to the inheriting of promises. I want to end with this quote from a professor named Craig Kester. This is a short summary. He said that the warning disturbs while the promise gives assurance, but they serve the same end, which is that listeners might persevere in faith. And that is what I hope both parts of this text do in your heart is that they motivate you to persevere in your faith to Christ, that both the warning is used that way and these words of comfort are used that way to help you individually and us collectively to persevere in our faith to the end. Let me pray for us. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come forward. We're gonna sing a closing song.